The United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. The first one is that the connection between climate change, food security, and national security cannot be argued. You might say, really? Hmm. And I've had plenty of people who have argued that, especially when you look at conflict risk. But the Department of Defense gets this. In their report to Congress last year, they stated the climate change impacts the ability of governments to meet the basic needs of their populations. Food, of course, being one of the basic needs. Very clearly stated of why the Department of Defense is so concerned about this. Although, based on my conversations, I would suggest not everybody in the Department of Defense see this as a key issue. The deepest questions. The darkest intuitions. This is The Moral Trigger. It's probably pretty obvious from those beginning clips that this episode will be on climate change. However, I will be approaching it from a different angle than what is usually discussed. This episode features a discussion with Patrick Foron, who holds a Bachelor's of Arts in Political Science from the University of Missouri-St. Louis, and he's also currently in the PhD program in Political Science at the same school. His area of concentration is U.S. Foreign Policy, National Security and Defense Studies, Climate Change, and International Political Economics. He's also going to be co-host of a weekly show about news and current events that's in the works, and I'll have more details on that in the coming days after this is released. In this episode, we tackle why climate change is a national security issue. I think it's worth discussing at length all the possible angles due to the climate change debate, and this is one that I haven't heard discussed honestly at all. So without further ado, I give you my conversation with Patrick Foron on why the military cares about climate change. Let's get into what you focus on, which is climate change is national security. And when we had first kind of talked about what we were going to talk about for this podcast, this is something you brought up that is something I had never really thought about. And I had looked into it and I found it actually really interesting because a lot of people, especially on the right, which I don't know if a lot of people know, but I am slightly more on the right end of the spectrum politically than I am to the left. And a lot of people, though, on the right just flat out deny climate change, but they love the military. And so the fact that the military takes climate change seriously is something I find absolutely fascinating. And I think it'll be a good way to get people talking about climate change in a different way than just being all hyperbolic and saying the world's going to end and ice caps are going to melt, which is absolutely true. But I want to get into that. So if you just give me a little bit of an overview of why does the military care about climate change? Yeah, sure. So so for me, I was I was researching as an undergrad, I was researching climate change. And the task of the assignment was to propose a policy with all the various so-called veto players involved, Congress, the president, the various agencies. I was supposed to assess the very likelihood of this policy getting passed. So I focused on climate change and I was I was focusing on a carbon tax and I started just getting into what the military thinks about climate change and I was blown away myself. You actually can't overstate how serious they are taking climate change. So I want to get um just give a quote from the former director of national intelligence James Clapper. So he recently said so he was actually at a speech at, at a conference about climate change and he said In the coming decades, an underlying meta driver of unpredictable instability will be, I believe, climate change. Major population centers will compete for ever-diminishing food and water resources, and governments will have an increasingly difficult time controlling their territories. And so because of all these factors, after ISIS is gone, 
we can expect some other terrorist entity to arise in a cycle of extremism which will continue to control us for the foreseeable future. Now, although he is part of the intelligence community, statements like that are exactly how the military feels about climate change. They view climate change as, and this is their words, a threat multiplier. Hmm. So meaning the already existing challenges in the world, you know, food security, state and institutional stability, migration and the movement of people, energy security, and so on, they are being and they will continue to be exponentially impacted by rising temperatures, sea levels, and all the related consequences of a warming planet. Climate change influences the entire geostrategic landscape and threatens literally every single concern and interest that the the military has. Wow. So that's truly Um, fascinating. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And sort of, uh, not that that was abstract per se, but I think it's good to paint a picture of the specifics here. Mm-hmm. So the Defense Department operates more than 555,000 facilities on 28 million acres of land with a total value of almost $1 trillion. And there are 1,200 military installations in the, like in the U.S. alone. And at any given time, we are engaged in special forces um, and humanitarian relief type missions in over 100 countries. So this is a daunting, daunting amount of responsibility. And the military is every day they are seeing that their their capabilities and their readiness is being threatened by drought, um, sort of just more unpredictability around the world due to climate change, according to the Pentagon. When I was reading this book, uh, that book you had recommended me, the what was it Tropic of Chaos, right? Right, by Christian Parenti. Christian Parenti, right. He um he was going over I only got about halfway through before we had this conversation, but he was talking about a lot of the wars going on in the Middle East and Africa and how they can be direct uh, directly tied to the famines and starvation that's happening due to climate change. So I want to get into a little bit of that. What is it uh, as far as why is that our national security concern? So that was kind of the question I had had. Right. He had a few twi- he had a few chapters about Africa, and I'm listening. I'm like, this is terrible, and it sucks. But uh, what does that have to do? I guess you could say with our national security. Because uh, you would just mention yeah. that they have a lot of you know bases and all that everywhere. So I guess is that why, or what's what's more the reasoning behind? So that? it's sort of a you could call it mission creep in one way. The U.S. military sees its they see it as its mission to protect the homeland from threat, challenge, and disaster. That's obvious, right? But right. also to promote global stability. It is a, that is a, an explicit objective, is to keep the world peaceful, stable, and free of conflict. Now, of course, as you said, many American citizens think that the United States military should not engage in protecting the global commons. But that is, in fact, what the U.S. military has been doing since after World War II. We help keep the sea lanes open for trade, commerce, and the smooth delivery of natural resources around the globe 24-7. So anytime there is a cut in the State Department budget, the military picks up that slack. They're the ones delivering vaccines. And they're not prepared or trained, by the way, um, necessarily to do this, do those jobs that well. But they're doing them. Um, they're engaging in humanitarian relief around the world. If there's a hurricane in the Philippines, for example, the U.S. State Department does have, you know, sort of food aid drops and all of that. But we are sending military members on the ground there. And it's not, I would say, widely understood or even widely popular. But that is part of the responsibilities of being a global superpower, according to 
the U.S. government. Sure, and I can definitely see that. And part of me, I'm—I mean, I agree. So, I guess if trying to—if if I ask you a moral question on for your own personal opinion, do you think that is the right thing to do? Because I'd like to say yes, and but I do understand the concerns with spending so much money abroad. But I just said I do lean towards more intervention. I guess. So, what do you personally think as far as on a moral level? Okay. Um. So I don't think about morals in a vacuum. So I think about you know, the current facts on the ground. And as I see it, I do believe that the peace and prosperity and security of the world since World War II has been greatly advanced because of the, because of the U.S. Um, global hegemonic role that we have taken. And it's not that I necessarily agree with everything that we are doing, but I know that as soon as we stop, China, for example, starts engaging in their own in their own adventures. And I think we have been a, on balance, a stabilizing force in the world, though I could definitely get into more nuance about that. And I would come across probably more critical than I just sounded now. I do believe in America's role around the world as it stands. Yeah, I'd have to agree too, especially uh, you mentioned a lot of this happened post-World War II. And if you look at who two of our biggest adversaries were, which were obviously Hitler's Germany and the uh, Imperial Japan, you look at them now, those are two of our number one, you know, trade partners and, and everything. They are, they are, you know, some of our top allies. And so it makes me think, we obviously, it's not like it can't be done. It clearly can be done. We we can make the right moves. Now, granted, this is 70, 80 years since but it's, I think Germany and Japan, and honestly, you could put in Italy and parts of the Middle East, not so much as Middle East is really chaos right now, but you could tie that to the end of the Ottoman Empire, which we don't have to get into all that. But I, I just think that we, it's, we've kind of proved using Germany and Imperial Japan that it can be done. So I don't know yeah, exactly. if, if, if you have any thoughts about that. Well, I, I think many, I, I would say many Americans born post-Cold War, uh, don't grasp the nature of the 20th century too well. Scholars such as Robert Kagan is someone who I actually very much um, am influenced by. He has a book called The World America Made, and he's considered a neoconservative, and I am not a neoconservative personally, but uh, he paints a very, very convincing argument that liberal Western democracies and all of its, all of its, um, you know, commerce and trade and cultural exchange was not inevitable and that we are largely responsible for, as you said, for the rise of of democratic liberal populaces in South Korea, Japan. We helped uh, reunite Europe through NATO and through uh, trade agreements. And I just happen to believe that what like the uh, the sort of the current zeitgeist we are living in is not it was not inevitable and that some sort of hegemonic power is necessary and i would like that to be the united states over china for example yeah i'd have to agree because you know they talked about a good thing or not really good but a you know a, a good dictator what is what's the term that they use where it like if you had a dictator that was actually looking out for the best interests the benevolent, yeah the benevolent dictator that's what I, sorry that's the word i'm getting at Okay, so I kind of want to get back into the specifics of climate change, but I was curious what you thought about that. So since Trump kind of said that climate change is a Chinese hoax, and he said really just ridiculous things proving that he has no idea what he's talking about, specifically when it comes to climate change, 
do you think that the military opinion will get to him? Because, like I said, you know, people on the right, not always, but tend to deny climate change, but they also really support the military a lot and care a lot about what the military thinks. And so do you think that the military opinion could actually get to him? Or what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I haven't thought a whole lot, honestly, about how how much Trump will actually listen to the military. I do have confidence in the bureaucracy um, and not just the Pentagon, but the State Department, um, the Department of Energy, for example. And there, this, th- this is a very large ship that Trump is now trying to direct. And I don't see him doing a lot of damage as far as what it comes to actually, you know, like how these agencies are ran, especially the Pentagon. I mean, I, is trying, I mean, his, his budget request, which actually didn't. So the U.S. just passed a budget and it's actually not what trump requested at all right but he didn't get the wall and i seen planned parenthood was in there and he didn't get the wall and there was an increase in the state department's budget and so i don't know that's a i didn't really answer that question too clearly um i don't think the pentagon is really going to to um stop what they are doing and what they are doing is they are considering and factoring in climate change and all of their planning documents that are um that are actually available online that anyone can read Hmm. Um, they they are considering climate change very seriously to this day. There's actually a funny uh, a funny anecdote that I think it was in 2015 the House of Representatives they passed a they they passed as part of their budget they passed a a, a rule that said the the Pentagon can no longer factor in climate change and the Senate said that's not that's not going to happen so they took that line out and the Pentagon themselves said that they will call it something else then. <laughs> If you, they will just call it like sustainability, um, preparedness, readiness, mitigation. They won't use climate change, but they they cannot factor out climate change because it's it's real. <laughs> See, one quote I think is kind of appropriate here is Neil deGrasse Tyson says, you know, some scientific truths are true whether or not you believe in them, and that just seems how the Pentagon is treating it. They're like, okay, well, you can call it uh, storm fairies. It's <laughs> regardless, it's happening. So we're gonna yeah. we're gonna do something about it. There, and uh, there actually was a quote by um, a former general in the army, and he said, "Let's not call it ch- uh, climate change. Let's call it um, ocean acidification." Or huh. so let's take the focus off the big general abstract idea of climate change, and let's focus on specifics. And that will be that could might that might be a way of getting people to see that this sort of heady term is is tied to you know food and air and soil and all these basic understandings that we have. So there are four general areas of concern that the military um, highlights as as climate change as a national security challenge. Um, Do you mind if I get through those real quick? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. So Congress in 2015 actually requested a memo of the DOD and they said, tell us what you're mainly concerned about regarding climate change. And they said, so number one, and now this is a quote, persistently recurring conditions such as flooding, drought and higher temperatures increase the strain on fragile states and vulnerable populations by dampening economic activity and burdening public health through loss of agriculture and electricity production. The change in known infectious disease patterns and the rise of new ones and increases in respiratory and cardiovascular diseases. So that right there is a quote, and it sounds like something that the UN would have wrote or the State Department or, you know, some sort of civil society group. But that is the number one concern of the military right now regarding climate change. Mm -hmm. So that is an an example of uh, how climate change is a threat multiplier. All these conditions on the ground are going to be exacerbated by climate change. 
And so number two, the Pentagon says that they, that they are worried about, and I quote again, more frequent and or more severe extreme weather events that may require substantial involvement of Pentagon units, personnel, and assets in humanitarian assistance and disaster relief abroad and in, de- in defense support of civil authorities at home, end quote. So, yeah, the military is engaged in humanitarian assistance and really securing um, energy in an abundant supply for all the missions we do is a remarkable challenge. I believe this number is true. I know it's close to this number. We spend $20 billion a year in Afghanistan on energy. Really? And that is as far as like we, we have, you know, we have all of our all of our walled off uh, uh, military installations there and we are calling in. And I mean this literally, we're calling in oil supplies that arrive in an airport in Karachi, Pakistan, that then has to travel 800 miles down a road that isn't secure to get us oil on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. And um, so forget climate change for a second, like just for the sheer nature of all of our all of our involvement around the world, we are really focused on how we can cut our energy use and sort of a more the cutting edge research is going on regarding climate change in the Pentagon, in their um, in their DARPA agency, which a lot of conspiracy theorists like to talk about DARPA a lot as they're trying to control the weather and yeah. et cetera. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you hear all right. about DARPA and every YouTube conspiracy but video. <laughs> they are working on very cool, like they're working on material science and they're trying to figure out cutting edge materials that they could build their vehicles with that can have their own solar panels, for example, or that could even evaporate. And I'm using that word literally They're trying to discover materials that could evaporate so that their vehicles aren't just left there. What? <laughs> what? Yeah. What are you talking about? <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know the physics of it personally, mm-hmm. but if you look at DARPA. There, there's actually a, and I'll send a link to you to post in our post to post in our podcast. Okay. There's a, a publicly, you know, a website available for everyone to look at about the advanced material science that the Pentagon is engaging in um, and some cutting edge stuff. That's so cool. Yeah, if you send that to me, I'll make sure to post that where, wherever this podcast is embedded. You want to keep going? You had two yeah, more, yeah, right? Yeah, sure. Come on, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the third the third big issue is sea level rise and temperature changes. The, and I quote now, they're, they're projected to lead to greater chance of flooding in coastal communities and increase adverse impacts to navigation safety, damages to port facilities and cooperative security locations and displaced populations. Sea level rise may require more frequent or larger scale DOD involvement. Measures will also likely be be required to protect military installations both in the U.S. and abroad and to work with partner nations that support DOD operations and activities. And I'll just stop there for that one. Mm -hmm. Um, But they've actually, the U.S. Navy has created a a task force um, dedicated to climate change and they're sort of game theory. They're sort of using, I should state that the data they are using for their climate change understanding is from NASA, from NOAA, from the U.N., they're using um, data from um, other allies, such as Japan and India, and they are looking at all of the possible projections of sea level rise. There's sort of a minimal projection, and then a, a medium projection, and then a maximum projection. And mm-hmm. they're they're thinking long term. They're thinking 2050, 2060. They have to prepare and they have to upgrade all of their facilities. So uh, sea level rise and temperature changes, yeah, are on the radar again of the of the Pentagon. It's estimated to have possibly 20, 30 million climate refugees. And as you said earlier, refugees are a big problem right now. And I, I mean problem, 
I mean, problem in the sense of um, societies and culture is very, I think they're very sensitive. And when you have millions of people at your doorstep, it's not an easy, it's very, it's not an easy problem to solve. And we need to decrease the amount of refugees around the world. Sure. I mean, for their sake. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, When you were just talking about how the sea level rises, you said they kind of have three different levels of thinking about it. When I was uh, researching, I found he was former U.S. Army Chief of Staff. His name was uh, Gordon Sullivan. He had said that people are saying they want to be convinced perfectly. They want to know climate science projections with 100% certainty. Well, we know a great deal, and even with that, there is still uncertainty, but the trend line is very clear. We never have 100% certainty. We never have it. If you wait until you have 100% certainty, something bad is going to happen on the battlefield. And I found that to be pretty powerful because here's a general saying, look, we don't have, we don't always know exactly the information that we have going in. And if we wait, then lives are going to be lost. So this is a general saying, we need to act on this now. And I I just thought that was appropriate to the third thing you had mentioned. Yeah, that's a great quote. I, I agree with you. It is appropriate. The fourth, the fourth um, general concern of the Pentagon is the decreasing ice in the Arctic. So yeah, the Arctic is the region of the world that is warming the quickest, and that is opening up sea lanes that is going to have a tremendous impact. Russia has already planted a flag, for example, on the ground, and they claim territory in the Arctic. So does Canada, and so do we because of Alaska, and so does Norway, and so does Denmark. And these these sea lanes, they're going to be available in the summertime, and they're going to be used for trade and mm-hmm. commerce and natural resource exploration. And so the so the Pentagon wants to build icebreakers. And surprisingly, we I think we only have one, and Russia has five or six. Hmm. So we are trying to build more icebreakers. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating, man. Like I just can't believe that there's actually all these things going on. Just all you hear is that the government doesn't really care. It's only the left wing hippies and the people in the Green Party that want to just tax you on everything. And this is just this is pretty fascinating. So one thing I was kind of curious is: so what is the military doing to try to fight the climate change? Because you mentioned a couple things, but like, so what are they, what are some steps that, since it is a national security issue, what are some steps that they are taking to, to, okay. to you know, to try to mitigate some of this? Right. So I do think, um, so it is hard to get specific information from the Pentagon. And so a lot of what is available online, they are sort of sustainability plans. They're, they're doing they're doing academic analysis on the future, like I mentioned earlier, but they are already upgrading their their naval facilities around the country. And any time that they, and I mean this literally, any time that they create another tactic or plan or mission, they factor in the, the uh, projected energy use and they try to source the most renewable types of energy for those missions. Um, and they have cut their their, their fossil fuel use by 18 to 20 percent for the uh from the last few years wow but they also are the the u.s military is probably the, the largest polluter in the world so <laughs> and that's just because the sheer that's just the sheer amount the sheer amount of activity going on yeah control military i should understand that so that 20 percent is kind of just one of those they should be doing that <laughs> right they should be doing it. right okay so as far as international relations are concerned what 
And what is the biggest concern? Is it these small little wars that are happening in, in Africa? Kind of like how I was, I was mentioning that book was talking about all these small places over in Ke- or not small places, but uh, small conflicts happening over in Kenya and Ethiopia and all these areas so, where there's famines and whatnot. That book, um, Tropic of Chaos, that book does refer to a, a study by the Swedish government, and that is referring to the area of the map between the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of, of Capricorn. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's Central America, the top half of South America, and then you know, all the way across the uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, you know, India, Pakistan, Indonesia. So all the countries right now that have major issues are going to be impacted by climate change. And yeah, there there are there is a connection of so in Egypt, for example, and Syria, they were having record droughts before their protest. Now it's hard to directly say because there was a drought, they protested and that spiraled out into the civil war. Mm-hmm. But if you read their signs, they did say things like, "We want bread. We want bread." Literally. Um, and these drought conditions are creating unemployment. And then you have millions of underemployed, angry young people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I guess the, the larger picture is, is we are worried about anarchy and chaos spreading. So many of these governments that I just mentioned in the, in, in the middle of the, um, in the uh, Tropic of Chaos, they don't have very strong institutions. So we're trying to prevent state failure in all of the and all of all of what happens if a nation, you know, if, if, if a state collapses, which is more migration, more, um, uh, possibly more terrorism, things like that. Sure. Well, this is some pretty crazy stuff, man. Like I said, I, when I, when you had first mentioned this to me, I was something I hadn't even thought about, but this is some pretty serious stuff. You, you would think the military is actually paying attention and caring about climate change that, that would reflect into the new administration's policies, but instead it's not. Well, I think yeah, that's about I, it. Is, is there anything a, else that you wanted to add in? I'm sorry. No, um, I I saw that you that that you wanted to possibly talk about um, like how to persuade public opinion. Right. I was kind of thinking about that, but you had mentioned you hadn't really thought about too much about how to how to persuade the Trump administration. So, but yeah, if you want to get into that, that's actually something well, I'm curious about. I just you know, well, sure. sure. I was thinking a more a more general a more general sort of take on this is so. For my first semester of graduate school, we had to read a report by this this organization called the Frameworks Institute, and they are all about how do you frame public issues if you are a policy entrepreneur to get support for them. They do a very interesting sort of like um, three-level understanding analysis, and so level three would be so – I'm, I'm, I'm going to go in reverse order. So level three would be what doesn't work if you are trying to convince people to support your position. So don't mention so don't mention specific issues like rainforest or the earned income tax credit. And I'll explain why in a second. Level two would be issue types like the environment or child care. So if you are trying to convince someone to care about the environment, don't mention the environment. And then <laughs> so level one is big ideas like freedom, justice, community. That's where it is. So in my opinion, it's not disingenuous. I think people are really concerned about, you know, their families, their community, and they just don't really, it's hard to understand an abstract phrase like global warming and climate change. It's hard to really tie that to the, yeah, amount, of fish, the amount of fish in the ocean. You know, it's, it's, the average person doesn't really make, uh, make those connections and it's not their fault. It's very, very complicated, but essentially go where people are. And I have an anecdote that is what it's worth, I guess. Um, so I have a coworker who she is a staunch Republican conservative woman. 
and she's my friend. I like her a lot. And she just does not believe in climate change. And then all of a sudden, a um, a photographer went to her church and showed her and showed them photos of climate change around the world. Huh. And she came to me the next day and said, "Hey, this guy this guy came to my church and showed us these photos, and I believe in climate change now." And it's that simple of like literally go where they are and also like they have to identify with you as a person like this person was also a christian so it helped them see that hey christians care about climate change too sure yeah that makes sense and once you have that community aspect and the social that's one thing i totally agree with is like the social we got to have some type of social pressure and when you think about something as abstract as climate change i think the vast majority of people for what it's worth think in tabletop economics which is i don't know i don't know who came up with that but whereas if, as far as, you know, what goes on outside, why why do they care when they're just trying to feed their family at night? So what doesn't happen at the table doesn't really matter. So I guess, how can we convince them besides saying, you know, this is going to affect your grandchildren, this is going to affect your great-grandchildren, and this is going to affect business and all these things. So how do you think <clears throat> we can, uh, you know, apply some social pressure here? Right. Well, there are actually polls that show that – so people's opinions do actually vary and they do actually take in information. And so when they're employed and they feel secure at home, they tend to care about environmental issues in public polls more than, you know, if they're – if they, you know, if they just got fired or they don't – or they're not happy at home. So um, I – I think it, it. I think. I think people support. They. Uh, they will support environmental concerns if they are secure at home. So we need to focus on on job security, on healthcare. Yeah, on on things that matter matter to families. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to further the discussion, all information can be found at www.themoraltrigger.com. Be sure to go like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash themoraltrigger and comment your opinions to me and others, especially if you disagree. And finally, I hate ads, and to help me avoid using them, consider supporting the show financially through Patreon. Every dollar helps to keep this an open platform and make sure that no one is silenced.